Happy Halloween, everybody. Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I usually release new episodes on Tuesdays, but I wanted you all to have a little something to listen to on Halloween morning. And so I'm going to do more of what I did last week and just read you a few stories from some of the books that I have about haunted, strange, unusual Kentucky. And so we're going to start today with a story. Uh, We're going to go to Southern Kentucky, and this is from the book Haunted Kentucky by Alan Brown. And this is called The Spirits of Spurlington Tunnel. Many people believe that the little community of Spurlington owes its inception to the establishment of churches. The first in the area, the Spurlington United Methodist Church, was founded around 1800. Another was built in 1850. Spurlington likely would have remained a small community of farmers had it not been for the completion of a 31-mile rail line from Greensburg to Lebanon. Work on the line began soon after the establishment of Taylor County, but it wasn't completed until the construction of the Spurlington Tunnel through Muldraw Hill. Excavation of the tunnel, which began on March 1, 1867, was slow, tedious work, owing largely to the fact that workmen had to dig through blue limestone and a ledge of black flint. The average workforce of 75 men was able to dig only six feet into the rock in a 24-hour period. They also had to dig a 100-foot shaft in the middle of the tunnel to allow for the release of smoke from passing trains. The 1,900-foot tunnel was completed seven years later, on July 1, 1874. At one time, as many as four trains per day passed through the Spurlington Tunnel, carrying passengers and freight to Taylor and Greene counties. The construction of the tunnel created many job opportunities for prospective residents of Spurlington. Not long after the line was completed, stores, schools, and a post office were established. The Spurlington Tunnel is also responsible for the ghostly aura that still envelops the community. Stories of haunted activity began during the construction of the tunnel. Folklorist William Linwood Montell reports in Ghost Across Kentucky that on February 19, 1873, a construction crew heard the reverberations of spectral hammering coming from the unfinished tunnel. One Saturday night, the bolder members of the crew decided to investigate the source of the strange noises. They were walking through the tunnel at midnight with lighted lanterns when suddenly a ghostly mule charged at them out of the murky darkness and then vanished without a trace. The spectral creature was followed by a phantom workman who ran out of the tunnel with a dozen or more hammers swinging from his tool belt. Like the mule, he vanished into thin air. The workers' courage quickly evaporated, and dropping their lanterns on the ground, they ran back to their wagons as fast as they could. The best-known spirit of Spurlington Tunnel is the ghost of Nancy Bass. 
Known by the locals as Aunt Nancy, the woman lived near Campbellsville in the mid-19th century. She was said to be a witch who cast spells on people she disliked, infecting them with mysterious illnesses. People claimed to have seen her wandering around their barns and haystacks. Legend has it that one night in 1860, she witnessed members of the James Gang digging a hole where they deposited $50,000 worth of loot they had stolen in a recent train robbery. The robbers spotted Nancy eavesdropping on them and dragged her from her hiding place. Once the men revealed their intention of killing her, Nancy warned them that if they did, she would curse them and anyone else who tried to recover the stolen gold and silver. Ignoring the witch's threat, the robbers shot her and buried Nancy and the stolen loot. Not long after Nancy was murdered, six of the seven bandits were captured and hanged. A few years after her death, the Spurlington Tunnel was built over her body. The seventh bandit lost his life after the train he was riding plummeted into the Rolling Fork River when the bridge collapsed. Today, Spurlington is a shadow of its former self. Its period of prosperity ended when the railroad ceased stopping at the town. Eventually, the school was torn down and many of Spurlington's stores closed. The few remaining relics of the past in Spurlington are the churches and the tunnel, which has not been used for railroad traffic for more than a decade. One can only wonder what stories the empty tunnel could tell if its gaping black mouth could speak. Our next story is from the book Cruelly Murdered by Kevin McQueen, and it's called A Corpse in the Closet. Henry S. Church lived in his grocery shop at 1215 West Market Street, Louisville. Three policemen near his store heard what sounded like firecrackers being set off inside the building on the night of June 22, 1901. They found Church sitting in a chair, mortally wounded from a suicide attempt, or rather, three attempts. In order to make certain he accomplished his mission of self-destruction, Church had shot himself in the chest with a revolver, slit his wrist with a razor, and drank laudanum. After calling for an ambulance, the police searched Church's apartment for a note. Instead, they found a sink full of unwashed dishes, signs of a struggle, and a torn dress at the foot of a bed. I thought he was single, remarked a lieutenant. Then they noticed a hearty stink emanating from a closet. When they opened the door, they beheld a middle-aged, wide-eyed, bloody-haired female corpse clad only in a nightgown and in an advanced state of decomposition. The coroner found that she had been strangled with a gingham apron, which was still wrapped around her neck, and also that she had been dead two long, hot summer days. This last bit of news upset the stomachs of Church's more delicate neighbors, who recalled with a shudder that he had been running his store and conversing with customers as usual. 
Although, after a certain point, he hung a closed sign on his establishment's door and stayed inside. All the time, he had borne the secret of the increasingly pungent corpse in his closet. Church died at the hospital on the morning of June 23rd. Investigators found that the dead woman was Emily Stewart of Frankfurt, whom Church falsely had claimed was his wife. The question of motive was a mystery. Since Stewart was a co-owner of the store, some thought that Church had murdered her in an attempt to take over the business. On the other hand, the fact that she was wearing a nightgown when she died implied that Stewart and Church were more than just business partners. Police also discovered that Mr. Church, the friendly neighborhood grocer, was a morphine addict. Church was buried in Frankfurt, next to his real wife. On June 29th, a week after his death, he was the subject of one final mystery. Merchants came to his store to buy unsold stock. As workers cleared the building of its merchandise, someone uncovered a trap door beneath the counter. It was large enough to admit a body, and the sawdust which was lying upon the ground was fresh, so that it was certain that the contrivance was not old, wrote a reporter. Several of the boards had been nailed together so that the door could be lowered or raised at will. Had Church intended to hide Emily Stewart's body under the floorboards? Our next story is from the Kentucky Book of the Dead, also by Kevin McQueen, and it's called The Ghost of the Mother of a Druggist. In 1880, Robert C. and Margaret Stockton built a spacious two-and-a-half-story Victorian frame house on a residential street in the heart of Richmond, Madison County. The family trade was pharmacy, and over the decades, several Stocktons became prominent druggists. A number of people died in the house over the years, as is true of all old residences. One untimely death was that of Matthew Stockton, son of Edward Dorsey and Mary Catherine Stockton. From the mid-1880s, Matthew worked as a furniture salesman, an undertaker, and a druggist. He died at age 40 on April 21, 1891, after an illness of several years' duration. The house is now haunted, but the ghost is not that of Matthew, despite his premature demise. One of the last family members to own the house was Edward Claiborne Stockton, son of Robert and Margaret, the original builders. Unable to face the damage done to his business by the Great Depression, he used his pharmacist's knowledge to end his life on October 21, 1937. He drank phenolic acid in his store, walked home, and died in the house. The local paper politely said he had died of a heart attack, but his death certificate proves otherwise. His funeral was held in his house two days later. Edward's tragic self-destruction would seem to make him a promising candidate for ghosthood, but he also is not the haunter. The house was occupied by various families until 1977, when the house was sold to the Carambellis family, 
The head of which was, can you guess his occupation? Yes, another druggist. They moved out around 1981, and the residence was empty for a couple of years. In June 1983, a professional couple, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, moved into the Stockton house. By some cosmic coincidence, Mrs. Jones was also a pharmacist. Mr. Jones was an attorney and certainly not a believer in ghosts. After a few uneventful days in the house, the Joneses realized that they might have an unasked-for roommate who had been dead for nearly a century. The first incident occurred at the attention-getting hour of 2 a.m. on June 18, 1983. A picture in the dining room came loose from its nail and fell to the floor. Not particularly mysterious in itself, but next, the Joneses had problems with a lamp in the entrance hall that kept switching itself on and off. Fearing that it might have been bad wiring, they replaced it with a new lamp, but it also behaved as though it had a mind of its own. Events took a major escalation on the night of July 19th. Mr. Jones, generally a sound sleeper, snapped awake in the middle of the night and saw an uncanny figure standing at the foot of the bed. It was an elderly woman with long blonde hair and a milk-white countenance with sunken brown eyes and blue eyelids. Her face was homely and deeply lined. She wore a white-layered dress. Many years after the incident, Mr. Jones related that the woman's deep, hoarse, mannish voice was one of her most frightening features. Most of what she said was indistinct, but she muttered something about looking for a picture and going to a funeral. Jones had the presence of mind to glance around the room to see if either his wife or his cocker spaniel was aware of the ghost. Both were asleep. Jones noticed that the time was 2.20 a.m. When he looked back at the foot of the bed, the figure was gone. Any hopes he had that it had been only a dream were dashed the next morning. Fifteen baskets the Joneses had hung in their kitchen had been taken down and scattered across the floor. Three days after he saw the ghost, Mr. Jones decided to tell his wife about the strange visitor. She didn't believe him. Unexpected confirmation of his experience came on October 30th, as Mr. Jones cleaned out a crawl space in the third floor attic. He found many interesting relics of the past owners, including old letters and papers, and an oil painting of fruit dated February 1891. Suddenly, he found himself face to face with the being he had seen in the bedroom doorway three months before. Jones's heart skipped a few beats until he realized he was looking at a long discarded oil painting. When he brought the painting into the light, Jones saw that it was dated January 27, 1891, and the subject resembled perfectly the mysterious old woman he had seen, right down to the heavy jowls, round staring eyes, downturned mouth, and sour expression. She was depicted wearing widow's weeds, complete with a black cap, 
which indicated that the portrait had been made while she was in mourning. Having seen the portrait myself, I can only compare the likeness to the late character actress Anne Ramsey, who appeared in the film Throw Mama from the Train. Perhaps this was the painting the ghostly loiterer had mentioned seeking. After the Joneses framed the portrait and hung it in the dining room, they received unspoken signals that the spirit was pleased. The Joneses researched the history of the house and decided that the ghost identity was Mary Catherine Stockton, wife of Edward Dorsey Stockton and mother of Matthew, who had died so young in the house. She had died on July 16, 1898, at age 69, after a protracted illness of several weeks, according to her obituary. In life, she had had rather a domineering personality, which the ghost also had in spades. And I mention as an interesting tidbit of local history, she allegedly had been one of the first women in Richmond to own an automobile. Mr. Jones took the painting to a Lexington psychic, who told him that the woman in the portrait was definitely his ghost. The clairvoyant had the impression that she had dominated men all her life and would try to do the same to Mr. Jones. The way to handle her, said the psychic, was for Jones to talk back to her and show her that he would not put up with any nonsense. The ghost had taken a shine to him because she mistakenly believed he was her son, Matthew. The psychic revealed that Mary Stockton's ghost was able to go anywhere in the house that she pleased, even outside to the patio, but that she favored the attic and the front parlor. She was most active at Christmas time, her favorite holiday, and would be seen most often around 2 a.m. The psychic added, you will see her again in the huge gold mirror in the hallway. You will look in the mirror and see her reflection some morning around 2 a.m. For months, Mr. Jones made it a habit not to look at the mirror. But around 2 a.m. on the night of February 1st, 1984, he went to turn off a hall light. While doing so, he accidentally glanced at the mirror and saw Mary Stockton reflected in it. She was sitting on an antique sofa in the front parlor. Mr. Jones quickly left. When he returned to check the front parlor, she was gone, but he felt a warm spot on the couch as though someone had been sitting there. The Stockton house was located next door to a Tau Kappa Epsilon fraternity house. Some of the members confided to the new owners that they had seen lights going on and off in the Stockton house at night during the two years it had stood empty. Mr. and Mrs. Jones were careful to restore the house to its former beauty and decorate it with antiques. They got the impression that Mrs. Stockton appreciated the gesture. Gradually, they came to view their ghost as being likable, though unnerving and a trifle bossy. Eventually, Mr. Jones developed enough of a bond with Mrs. Stockton's ghost that he could sense when she was present in the house. The door to the third floor often unlatched itself, and the Joneses could hear footsteps in the attic. 
In October 1984, Mr. Jones saw a shadowy form in the dining room mirror, after which a light in the parlor turned itself off. During the 1980s and 90s, the Joneses kept a television on top of a refrigerator. Like the lamp, the TV would turn itself off and on repeatedly. He had it checked out, and the repairman found nothing wrong with it. Mrs. Jones's father lived in the den for six years before his death in 1989. Often, he would remark cryptically, there's a haunt in this house. He would provide no details when pressed, and his manner seemed to indicate that he considered the matter closed. Once the Joneses had friends over, while sitting at the kitchen table, every person in the group saw the drawers of a sideboard opening and closing of their own volition. Who's doing that? The guests asked. Mrs. Stockton, Mr. Jones replied. Perhaps she was simply in a mood to show off that night, for on another occasion, Mr. Jones refused to show the third floor to company during a party because he instinctively felt that she was up there and did not want to be disturbed. One day, a family friend came to visit, and in the middle of conversation with Mr. Jones, the woman's face blanched. You just saw her, didn't you? asked Jones. The shaken guest confirmed that she had seen a woman standing in a doorway with her back to her. The ghost wore a long black dress with a bustle and puffy sleeves, and she had blonde hair done up in a black net. Mr. Jones found the detail of the black dress particularly interesting, since earlier the same day, he had seen the ghost of Mary Stockton standing in front of a Christmas tree and wearing the very same dress described by the visitor. In all her previous appearances, the ghost had worn white. The visitor, by the way, should have felt proud of the fact that she was the only female ever to see the ghost who appeared exclusively before males. Mrs. Jones never saw the ghost or even felt its presence in all the years they lived in the house and admits that she would have been skeptical of her husband's story if not for the fact that he had described the ghost to her before he found the painting. On Memorial Day, 1985, Mr. Jones went to the Stockton family plot in Richmond Cemetery in order to pay his respects. He noticed that Matthew Stockton's tombstone had toppled over. The front hall lamp that had so bedeviled the family had not turned itself on and off for two years, but the very next morning, it started its familiar tricks again. Mr. Jones took the hint and said aloud, All right, Mrs. Stockton, I'm going to call the cemetery and have them put Matthew's tombstone back up. He kept his word, and the lamp behaved. In October 1985, the Lexington Herald Reader ran a feature on Richmond's haunted house. The day after, Mr. Jones received a phone call from a man in Mount Sterling who had lived in the house with an aunt and uncle while he was attending Eastern Kentucky University in the 1970s. The caller described supernatural experiences that were very similar to Mr. Jones's own. He was able to provide a perfect description of the ghost, although the Herald Leader article did not describe it in any detail. 
The Lexington psychic, to whom Mr. Jones had taken the painting, had further interesting news. She announced that someday the Joneses would have a son, and that the baby's presence in the house would make Mrs. Stockton very happy. They scarcely believed the psychic's words, for they had been unable to conceive a child after years of marriage. In 1993, however, they had a son. They never told him about the woman upstairs so as not to frighten him, but he sensed her presence anyway. When he became a toddler, he talked about the witch who lived at the top of the stairs and feared that she would break his toys. To this day, he vividly recalls seeing the ghost when he was three years old. He claims that she stood at the top of the attic stairs and wore a white gown and a black hat with a white stripe around it. She said nothing to the boy in that frightening voice, thank goodness, but she stood with her arms outstretched like Christ on the cross. Perhaps it was intended as a friendly, come to me, gesture. While the family lived in the Stockton house, Mr. Jones saw the ghost an average of once or twice a year. The last sighting was in 1998. She spoke to him only twice. The first time was on the night she appeared in his bedroom. On the other occasion, she said something about a fan in her guttural, barely intelligible manner. On a whim, Mr. Jones went to the Turpin Funeral Home and got a handheld cardboard fan of the sort that mourners cooled themselves with in the days before air conditioning. He left it on top of some Madison County history books on a desk. The fan got into the habit of disappearing and turning up in unexpected places. After 18 adventurous years of living with their shadowy roommate, the Joneses moved out of the house. They left not on Mrs. Stockton's account, but because a newly constructed apartment complex next door ruined the historical integrity of the neighborhood. They made certain to give the house's buyers full disclosure about the ghost. The Joneses left the portrait of Mrs. Stockton behind in the dining room, but the new owner took it down. Not long afterward, he lost his job, and his mother died the first night she came to visit. But that was probably all a coincidence. Our last story is again from the book Haunted Kentucky by Alan Brown, and it's called The Witch's Grave at Pilot Knob Cemetery. Stories of witches' graves have been a staple of American folklore for centuries. In the old burying yard in York, Maine, one can find the burial site of Mary Nassen, an herbalist and exorcist whose husband, according to legend, placed a stone slab on top of her grave to keep her in. Illinois' Chesterville Cemetery holds the grave of a young woman who was accused of being a witch by the Amish because she opposed the treatment of women in the area. After she died, a tree was planted over her grave to prevent her spirit from escaping. The little town of Yazoo City, Mississippi, is said to be home to a vengeful witch. 
1884, a mob discovered the corpses of two men in her house and chased her to the riverbank, where she became mired in quicksand. After she was pulled out and buried in Glenwood Cemetery, a heavy iron chain was placed around her grave. Before sinking in the quicksand, she had cursed the town, vowing to return from her grave and burn it down on May 25, 1904. Twenty years after the witch's death, a fire did indeed destroy Yazoo City. The next day, several survivors found that the chain around the witch's grave was broken. In the little town of Marion, Kentucky, Pilot Knob Cemetery is said to contain not only the grave of a witch, but something even more sinister as well. According to the version of the legend on the Shadowlands website, in the late 1800s or early 1900s, a five-year-old girl and her mother were accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake. The fate of the mother's body is unknown, but the girl's corpse was buried in Pilot Knob Cemetery in a steel-lined grave that was filled with rocks. Around the perimeter of her grave is a white picket fence consisting of crosses connected end to end. The story is that, at night, the girl's ghost walks back and forth inside the fence, making faces at visitors to her gravesite to provoke them into coming too close. Visitors who lie down on her grave feel as though they're being pulled underground by little hands. The little witch, it seems, is intent upon sapping the strength from spectators in order to make her more powerful. Witnesses describe her as a small blonde girl wearing a white dress. Both her hair and dress are scorched. The little apparition appears to be frustrated because she wants to look for her mother, but is prevented from doing so by the fence. Actually, the little girl's ghost is better off confined within the fence because she is stalked by an evil entity known by locals as the Watcher. He is said to be a murder victim who cannot get at the child because of the crosses embedded in the fence. The Watcher has been known to chase away bystanders who might also be bent upon stealing the soul of the little witch. Visiting the witch's grave has become a rite of passage for local teenagers. A college student named Jake A. Wheat drove out to Pilot Knob Cemetery with his roommate to put the legends to the test. As they made their way into the cemetery, they were struck by the complete absence of trash or vandalism. As they expected, the witch's grave was easy to find. They soon discovered that the legend was at least partially factual. The gravesite was surrounded by a fence of iron crosses and covered in gravel with an iron vault placed over the actual grave. A close examination of the gravel revealed several small footprints, the size of a little girl's feet. As the sun sank below the horizon, the deepening shadows made the old graveyard even creepier. The boys were looking around the witch's grave when suddenly they heard the crackling of underbrush and a voice saying, you go there. Spooked, the young man began walking toward the car. 
the sound of footsteps behind them made it apparent that they were being followed. They had almost reached the car when Jake realized that the temperature was dropping. After they were safe inside the car, the boys were relieved to be warm once again. Jake and his friend had not heard the story of the evil watcher until after their visit to Pilot Knob Cemetery. Jake is now convinced that they were indeed pursued by some sort of evil creature while they were leaving the witch's grave. At the end of their adventure, the young men had found out why cemeteries and sometimes individual graves are enclosed inside fences. The fences keep trespassers out, and in some cases, keep the occupants in.